You're listening to Two for Tea. I'm your host, Iona Italia. And I'm her frequent co-host, Helen Pluckrose. This is a podcast about politics, society, science and art. And about how everyone is wrong apart from us. This podcast is brought to you in association with ARIO magazine, a digital forum for calm, reasonable voices from across the political spectrum. The podcast is entirely listener-supported. To become a patron and gain access to patron-only broadcasts and other perks, support us on Patreon at 2 for Tea. Welcome to The Conversation. My guest today is Liam Kofi-Bright. Hello, Liam. Hi, Iona. And we are both coming to you from London. Liam is an assistant professor at the London School of Economics and Political Science. He has a PhD in logic, computation and methodology. Um, And he is a philosophy of science specialist. His background is in philosophy and in philosophy of science. And he's published a number of, of papers. Liam also has a letter wiki account, which I recommend you check out and I will put some links there. And I've also had a conversation with Liam on the odd phenomenon that he seems to um, dislike himself, or he's always joking about hating himself. So we may get onto that later in the podcast. Um, but I will I will link to that below. And I'll also link to a reading list of his various papers and talks. Uh, welcome, Liam. Hi, good to be here. The first thing I wanted to ask you was um, why you call yourself the last positivist. So I have been listening to uh, some talks of yours about the positivists, but maybe you could run by the simple version for listeners. Who were the positivists and why are you a fan? And why are you um, the last positivist? Hopefully not in the same way as Dave Rubin is the last liberal. Oh, you know, I'm sure we'll get into what <laughs> Dave Rubin and I have in common. Um, but uh, so partly, I should say, the last, so the last positivist is my Twitter handle. And partly, to be honest, it's a reference to the film and the book The Last Unicorn, which are great. But um, OK, the more serious intellectual point. Uh, the positivists, and I have in mind especially the logical positivists, were a group of philosophers, scientists, intellectuals. Most famously, there was a group called the Vienna Circle in uh, sort of between the walls Vienna. And they were interested in a kind of combination of, um, I don't know, sort of cultural politics, philosophy of science, and like in general taking on board the results from the the new sciences in mathematics, logic, and, and physics. And what they tried to do was come up with a kind of like comprehensive uh, empiricist approach to these new new things that were being discovered, like Einstein's relativity and whatnot. But so empiricist here is just meaning like in somehow, in some way, it has to be the case that uh, knowledge is derived from experience. And the logical empiricists, the logical positivists, their version of this was that really it's the the meaning of our terms um, is going to turn out to sort of depend crucially on how they relate to experiences we do or could have. And so what it is for a sentence to be meaningful, to like be something which actually says something about the world, be it true or be it false, is for that sentence to be um, 
testable in some way. I mean, initially, they would have said verifiable, meaning it has to be the case that in principle, it would be possible there to be some observations we could make, uh, which would tell us conclusively whether or not that sentence is true. Now, that was the sort of their initial way of trying to sort of like integrate a whole bunch of phenomena they were interested into sort of like one theory or one approach to to doing philosophy. Um, and then also they was they tried to sort of like use this against the the rising uh, fascist movements of their day. And so they sort of tried to argue that the things that the Nazis were saying, for instance, about there being a, a superior race who are destined for glory, like you know, that that fails that test. There is no possible observation which could confirm, which could verify statements like that, because it just doesn't mean anything in that kind of empiricist sense. And so you could sort of like rule out a bunch of stuff they didn't like, and yet explain how it is that we have um, scientific knowledge and we can that we can discover new things. Um, could I could I ask you? Could I get into why that sentence why that is meaningless? Uh, is it because it's a it's a prediction, and therefore it's just a kind of guess, um, or is it because of the normative? Um, if there is a superior race, why should that race be destined for glory? Or does it have to do with um, difficulty in establishing what's meant by superior, or all three? So it's probably more to do with the normative side of it, but it's like if you say, and this, I'm taking this example, and I might be getting the exact sentence wrong from a paper by Hempel on laws of history, and he does say, you know, an example of the kind of thing which wouldn't be meaningful is talking about the historical destiny of a certain race. And I think so. He he there talks about the historical destiny. He doesn't mention the word glory. That was me. And I think the idea is that the idea of destiny. Like, that's not, like, whatever occurs, whatever you might observe in uh, over the course of history, over the course of events, you can always claim that was destiny. It doesn't really sort of, like, actually distinguish between potential ways the world could be. And so it's somehow something, like, you know, you're not really making any prediction at all. If it was a prediction, if it was a guess, that would be fine. Um, but it, Ah, because the guess could be verified or not. Exactly, if that works out. Um, but like destiny talk doesn't have that kind of feature. And so the the thought is that like, yeah, Nazi claims about the destiny of the Aryan race, they, they would be ruled out by those criteria. Right. Because by definition, supposedly you can't avoid fulfilling your destiny. Quite so. Um, yeah, so I, I, they then moved over to the, um, they, some of them were, were killed and some of them managed to leave and go to the US. Is that correct? Yes. So, you know, famously, they lost that culture war fight. And um, yeah, they were kind of scattered. Some some didn't survive and most went to the US, although some actually came to the UK. Um, And, you know, between obviously that was a very traumatic event, which kind of affected how they saw things. And also there were just kind of problems with the the very, I mean, I simplified it too much, but even their, their initial versions of how they tried to work out that kind of empiricist idea about claims only being meaningful they can be related to experience it you know they never quite got it to work in the way they wanted and so that would be difficulty for them and so between kind of being scattered in this way um between intellectual difficulties of working out precisely how to sort of formulate their core claims in that in a way that's all past master and actually also in america some of them were targeted by mccarthy that turned out to be difficulty for them as well I mean, all this talk about, you know, um, taking on the fascists, it, it sounds a bit commie, right? And so McCarthy mm. 
interested in them. And so you can actually find the FBI files on a bunch of them that they were spied on. And um, so, you know, between all these, these things, like the movement kind of ran out of steam and was rejected and Soviet didn't manage to sort of pick up many adherents afterwards. And more or less, you know, the reason I call myself the last positivist, therefore, other than wanting to make reference to that underappreciated gem of a 1980s animated film, um, is that, I, I, you know, I don't think this rejection was a good idea. Like, I, there were certainly important critiques which are worth addressing of this movement, and it is hard to formulate their main claim in an acceptable way. But I think it's possible, and I think it would be valuable um, for the same kind of reasons, actually. I think it's both kind of intellectually, um, epistemically, in terms of like what we can know or discover. It can be useful to think this way. And I also think that um, that culturally or politically, there's something important and useful about like when when the powers that be try and try and sell you on something. It's like forcing them to state like, no, no, no. What do you mean concretely? Like, what actual difference would it make to our experience if such and such the claims you're making turn out to be true? Um, or if we do the things you propose, that's an important tool we have in holding powerful people to account. And so I actually think it's it's valuable. And so, yeah, I I I consider myself. The last, but hopefully not for long, because if I just tweet enough, then I presume I'll convert everyone and I won't be the last positivist anymore. And I think in a related, you're also a a moral, now I'm going to get this terminology wrong, um, but I, I don't, I'm not sure if this is related. Um, and I'm not very good at philosophy, I should say that straight up front. But um, the is-ought gap, the Humean thing, that you can't get an ought from an is, um, the world is a certain way. There are certain facts that we can know about the world, but those facts don't tell us what we ought to do, how we ought to behave. It's a problem that I had uh, when I was reading Sam Harris's book, The Moral Landscape. Yeah. Um, that he tries to derive, and in that book, he tries to derive an ethics from science. He says that the one thing that I know for certain is that. I am conscious, and I can um, I can feel pleasure, and I can and I can ex I can experience um, pleasure, fulfillment, meaningfulness, and I can experience suffering, and I want to avoid suffering, and therefore I can assume that other people are also conscious, other sentient beings are also conscious, and they also want to avoid suffering, but. What if I don't give a shit about other sentient beings and I'm just a complete psychopath and I only care about my own suffering? Um, I feel that it would be it would be quite possible to agree that this is fundamental to our knowledge that there are other sentient beings that, who suffer, and nevertheless n not get to that, not bridge that divide that says therefore we ought to try to. Um, minimize the amount of suffering in the world, um, try not to inflict suffering on others. Yes, I mean, I, I think it was, um, in the end, I think that Sam Harris's project in, in that book, um, I, I also remember reading actually, that yeah, it, it can't succeed. And, and for basically this reason, um, I, so actually Sam Harris has at the beginning, I think there's an end note um, of a nerdy passage where he more or less tells you that he's just kind of going to assume some broadly utilitarian moral premises and 
yeah, if you grant those utilitarian moral premises, then you could sort of make an argument along the lines he's given. But that's mean, what that means is he hasn't really got around to the is-ought gap. He's just assuming some oughts to go along with the scientific or descriptive facts which he's going to bring to bear. And, and, you know, and, and I suspect that's inevitable. I suspect there is no way of um, carrying out anything like the, the project which you might have thought the book was going to be engaged in, which would be like genuinely going just from kind of uh, description in light of our best science. I think in the book he draws um, on neuroscience for inspiration, but sort of a neuroscientific theory of how people are, you, you couldn't go from that to a moral theory without already having some moral assumptions you're making about, but yeah, about what you should care about or who you should care about. So. That's what makes it so difficult to get other people to care about the same things that that we care about. Um, we, in a, a broader sense, I'm not assuming anything about you and I, but that's what that's one of the problems um, is you ought to care about this thing um, is not is not going to persuade somebody to care about it unless they already do, or unless you can make a case that it's in their direct material interest to to care or not care that will make a direct have a direct effect on them. If you can't make that case, then it's very difficult to persuade a person who is hostile to your cause that they ought to care. I mean, I guess it depends what what one thinks of as going into persuasion. So mm-hmm. certainly, um, yeah, if someone simply sort of doesn't share moral premises with you, then yes, you could try. I mean, as you say, one thing to do is try and see if you can sort of derive from premises they already accept that the the moral conclusion you want follows, and that that can be very difficult. One can, of course, just try to sort of the the direct projects of sort of direct moral argumentation of trying to just not argue from uh, sort of scientific or descriptive premises, but sort of instead just argue from directly normative claims. So, you know, well, here's what justice is or here's what justice consists in. Um, now, actually, one of the things the logical uh, empiricists were kind of suspicious of was they, they didn't hold out much hope for that kind of activity. They thought that... Um, well, the, the, the moral claims are going to be the kind of things which are not, like, strictly speaking, going to pass their tests. Not all of them thought this, but most of them thought the moral claims aren't going to be the kind of things which pass their empiricist tests. So you probably can't just have these sort of direct logical arguments about what is or is not true morally, because nothing is or is true morally. Um, but, of course, another thing to do, and this is part of a, an, an old philosophic tradition in the... In the West, it goes by the name of sentimentalism, although you can kind of see it in Chinese philosophy and Confucianism too, is to think that what's going on with um, people's uh, moral reasoning or morals conclusions is that uh, we're sort of driven by our sentiments, by our passions, by what emotionally engages us in the right kind of way. And it does seem possible to sort of present people with the right with the right kind of media which does sway their moral passions and so oh i mean to be a bit topical but i promise I'll just talk, like there's a lot of discussion right now of like protest tactics because of the, the huge uh, disruptions going on in america right now and um now you know look a, a classic tactic of kind of civil rights activists right is to sort of film your like be seen to be kind of like oppressed or sort of beat up or harmed by the forces of the state 
precisely because that does seem to engage people's sympathy or engage people's empathy in some way, and in that way you can win people to your cause. Mm. And so yeah, there is a thing which seems something like moral persuasion, which goes instead via um, portrayals, maybe artistic portrayals, or in any th- case, things which are like emotionally engaging or effectively engaging. Um, and 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 that I you know I hold out some hope that there is ways that, that that's a possible route for like moral persuasion. So I'm not totally um, pessimistic about engaging in moral persuasion. Mm, mm. Liam, the other thing that that you have talked about a lot is, um, I guess it's the shortcomings of the scientific establishment, i.e., the kinds of things that handicap scientists prevent scientists from um, that incentivize fraud or prevent scientists from producing honest work. You have a talk which is called Why Scientists Lie. Yeah. And um, I would really like to know more about that. And I think it might answer this very hostile question that a troll has written on my status, um, where he says, ask Liam, why after 3,000 years are you still searching for what is truth? <laughs> Science in that time has made infinite progress. Is your subject just all waffle? Well, I should say, you know, I am in my early 30s and only begun doing philosophy when I was 15, so I don't think I've spent 3,000 years yet. But, um, <laughs> yes, that you there is, is doing a lot of work. <laughs> yeah. um, sure, so I, I'll answer the, the science question and I'll, I'll come back to that one. Um, so yeah, I, I've, one of the things I've been really interested in in my research is um, looking at sort of yeah what causes misbehavior in the sciences or what holds us back and sort of from having a kind of honest collective inquiry. What gets in the way of that? And uh, I, you know, there've been kind of like two groups of things I've been focused on really. One has been like what kind of yeah incentives or, or motivations scientists face or possess. And here I've been looking at ways in which kind of a lot of science is organized competitively. And so, um, you know, one has to compete for grants, one has to compete for positions in good labs, etc., in order to get research done. And it turns out that some of the ways this competition is organized and some of the ways this competition is carried out can lead to like temptations to commit fraud. And so like a natural suggestion, which has been actually made a policy is like, how can we get scientists to be less interested in the competition and more interested in sort of like the primary thing science is about, which is about seeking the truth. And so I've actually been kind of interested in this kind of other question is if we have people who are truth seekers, if we have, if we, if it worked, if we managed to persuade scientists, don't worry about the competition, just worry about sort of letting the truth be known, doing your research, finding out what's true and publishing it in some way. Um, and that last bit is important for the record because one of the things the competition does is encourage scientists to publish and you need scientists to publish in order for the work to be communicated. So let's just assume that somehow we've made people true seekers who also want to publicize their work for whatever reason. Like how, how you know, would that actually work in reducing fraud? And so that's got me really interested in cases you can find where it looks like scientists commit fraud in some sense because they believe this is a good way of um, promoting the truth or ensuring that um, like 
true things come to be known. So it turns out that like truth seeking itself can motivate scientific fraud. And that's been a kind of one focus for me. The other focus for me, which I've been interested in is. Sorry, um, um, could you, I, I think I understand what you're talking about. You mean that they, they say, for example, the experiment didn't give the results that they were hoping for. Um, but they think that that is because of some error they made in conducting the experiment and had they done everything perfectly it would have shown those results and therefore they fudge their own results in order to kind of present the results that they think are actually the correct ones yep so that's the thing which happens and actually one of the things i am really interested in it, historically there was this period in um like early modern europe so this is like the 16th and 17th century where science, where like the norms were that you could admit to doing that. So there are actually lots of records historically of scientists saying, you know, I went out into the field, this is like botanists, to collect samples of these plants. But all the plants I found were weird ones, not representative. Don't worry, though, I corrected them when I draw them and represent them for you here so you can know what they really should have looked like. Um, and so we actually find, like, like, when scientists were allowed to admit to doing this, they just did it and told you they were doing it. What changed was it, it stopped being acceptable to admit that this is what you're up to. Um, and so that, that's certainly one kind of thing. The other thing is the way in which um, the truth-seeking, the second point I was going to make anyway, like the truth-seeking interacts with, like, you know, the material necessities of science. Like, it's expensive to do science. It takes materials. It takes um, people. I need funding for that. And so sometimes you get kind of scientists making a kind of, I'll do a small bad thing now for the sakes of a good thing later on. But the idea is like, in order to get the funding tomorrow, in order to like do my great research by which I will definitely be able to like discover and promote important truths, um, I need to get the funding. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to fudge some data now just to like stay in the game and have the right number of publications such that I'm like eligible to be, to be liable for this funding in this competition. But then once I get this, I'm going to use that to like to the greater good, and so like this is like one step backwards, but for the sakes of being able to take seven steps forwards. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you get like that kind of consequentialist or like sort of trade-off reasoning, um, too. And so between scientists committing that first thing, which I've called noble lies in print, where they're sort of lying but in service of what they think is the truth, and they just think their recent experiment or their recent work hasn't been representative. And that second thing, the kind of consequentialist trade-offs, like some fraud now for the sakes of more truth later, um, you know, these are ways in which even truth-seeking scientists can end up being motivated to commit fraud. And and these are things which historically and in actual science we do see occur. And so I've been interested in kind of the relationship between these ways in which you get scientific misbehavior and, and... the proposals, like the problem of science, that scientists don't care enough about truth-seeking for its own sake. I just think it's more complicated than that. And there's also, of course, the obvious thing that it's um, you want to get sexy, positive results, and you're not incentivized to check other people to do to verify other people's experiments um, yeah. to do replication. Well, so that's often t- so that's often taken to be like a negative feature of the way science is currently organized in terms of that competition for credit or esteem. So what scientists are up to nowadays is they they have to care about professionally how their peers see them, whether they're seen to be yeah producing you know sexy novel results as you as you put it, and that means you know I just don't have time to be doing stuff which isn't going to be seen as 
by other members of my community. And that means, yeah, I'm not going to do replication work, for instance. And that's turned out, it's very famously now, that's turned out to have been a huge problem. Um, and But the thought was that if we could make scientists more like concerned with the truth, then what we, you know, what we might reasonably hope to get out of that is they would be more concerned. Like, you know, sure, it won't be cool or exciting if we do this replication work, but, you know, I, I actually want to know is this actually true before I accept it or before I propagate it. And so for that reason, I will be incentivized to do things like replication work. So the hope was that exactly what it was, was going to help by making scientists less concerned with competition was that it would fix that kind of problem. There's also, I, I think that, I know that you've talked about this too, there's also a problem with, a potential problem with diversity um, of intellectual endeavours. So if all the funding is in certain areas, or also uh, certain things seem just way more promising, way more likely to produce the sexy results, everybody is going to be in a race to get those results in the same in the same little narrow bands of interest, um, whereas it's always in in our intellectual interest to have a a wide range. I think this is a factor in arts and humanities too, that there is a kind of snowball, a, a, um, a, a kind of feedback loop of pop, of the popularity of of certain topics. So, so this is definitely a, a, a big concern in the sciences, right? And, and as you say, and not just the sciences, the humanities too. In fact, I should be clear that a lot of what I'm saying, you know, I tend to just say the sciences to just mean um, I'm sort of old-fashioned in the sense of being Renaissance or something. I, I say the sciences to mean sort of, you know, organized bodies of knowledge or inquiry. And so really just mean by that any field, Um so I, it does, I'm not necessarily just referring to, uh, I, I don't know, what people would tend to think of as a scientist as roughly like the kind of job where you might plausibly to do bear a lab coat or something. But like, I, including this, you know, literary theorists will be subject to a lot of these pressures too. In any case, like, yes, like one real worry, and which this exercises so much thought and concern within academia is like faddishness and this goes in many many fields that like if a new approach comes along and it seems as you say it seems promising seems like it's the kind of thing that might be capable of generating interesting results then everyone becomes massively incentivized to to rush and try and do that as soon as possible if they're able to um and this is not good <laughs> it's not good because we don't want everyone doing the same thing right like partly New faddish things turn out to be wrong a disturbing number of the time, so it can be a big waste of our, a big waste of our lives. And what's more, like you don't, there is some benefit even if it turns out to be good to having some people doing the work of checking other avenues, seeing what else can be seen by other methods. That way, we'll sort of like cover more of logical space and be sort of more able to discover what's there to be discovered. And so it's this kind of challenge where, on the one hand, it's nice that innovations can quickly spread throughout the scientific community and new approaches can be adopted where they're effective. But on the other hand, you kind of, you know, you want to maintain a, a sizable minority of people who don't adopt whatever currently seems to be the most effective way of, of pursuing inquiry or the best models to use as your background or something like that. And so I've been, me and a number of philosophers and actually other science scholars as well, have been like really interested in this question of like, what can you do to try and prevent sort of uh, faddish over consensus or like over coordination on just a few methods or approaches. Um, 
I can, I can talk a bit about what we've proposed. Or, yes, please do. Right. So um, I think there's been kind of uh, three main like classes of proposals here. You know, I said a number really confidently there. Let's see if I actually end up with three things here. Oh, God, so, that's the one thing you should never do. That's one of the first things I was taught when when I started teaching. Never say, I'm going to make X number of points. <laughs> because somebody will be counting in the audience. Um, and somebody's going to be like, Liam forgot his third point. I'm confident that random people on the internet aren't going to be annoying parents. So, like, this is going to be fine. Um, yes, of course. Uh, random people on the internet are always lovely. So, I'm sure we'll be okay. Well, especially at least the sophisticated, classy audience of the Two for Tea podcast. Yes, exactly. My audience would never stoop to such pedantry. Yes, yeah, so that kind of class that starts from the top, Ayana. But, um, okay, so uh, the first kind of thing which has been interesting. It's basically just kind of stubbornness. Like you can sort of get scientists to be a bit less, I mean, not guess it. Scientists, because they're human, tend to be a bit less than perfectly rational. And this can be used the community's advantage. That there will always be some people who, when the new faddish thing comes along, even when the evidence does in fact suggest it's better, you know, they just, they don't want to switch. They've been doing their thing all their life. And, you know, that you can explain that through just kind of bias. Um, and I'm sure there's a bit of that. Or you can explain it uh, a bit more rationally. You can say, well, there are costs to switching method. You have to retool and retrain, and it might not seem worth paying the cost. But in any case, like that kind of uh, stubbornness can be really useful because it means that not everyone breaks away and tries the new thing, and so you're preserving some diversity in the community. That's good. Um, and so that's actually Karl Popper, for instance. Um, weirdly, if you know about some of his other theories, but Karl Popper was actually big in favor of that. He felt like one of the nice things about scientists. And so one thing, stubbornness or unwillingness to pay transition costs, that can be a good way of preserving diversity. Um, uh, a second thing has been a kind of maybe sort of diversity in values or um, diversity in prior experience. I mean, maybe you could separate those, but I'm going to call them one thing for the sake of having three things in the end. Screw you, internet pedants. Um, and so here the idea is that scientists will come to the table with different kinds of concerns and different kinds of things which initially seem plausible to you. And so, like, you know, I was just discussing this with my um, my former advisor, Kevin Zoman, shout out, represent, etc. And so, you know, there's this sort of classic case in the history of science sort of during the, the Copernican Revolution where um, – so previously there had been Ptolemaic work, which um, modeled the Earth as the center of the, I guess you should say, geosystem, and had ways of trying to account for the observations we made of the stars and the planets and the sun in light of that. And then Copernicus famously proposes a new model with the, with the sun at the center and um, a different way of accounting for what we observe. And Copernicus's model... I mean, at least the initial simple model that he, well, the initial model he presented was considerably simpler than um, the Ptolemaic one, the geocentric one, um, because the by this point, to account for like what we observe, if you assume the Earth at the center, you had to have an incredibly complicated model of you know what's revolving around what and like etc. Um, whereas Copernicus is one at least held out the hope of eventually being capable of having a quite a simple model, which would explain the same phenomena, but with like a much more, much more wieldy, much more capable of being understood model of things. The problem was, is that the evidence just fit 
the geocentric one better. The observations you could make at the time were more consistent with the uh, geocentric than the solar-centric um, or the heliocentric model. Um, and so uh, you kind of had a choice. What do you care about? Do you care about fitting the data more or do you care about simplicity more? And it turned out to be kind of useful that like some scientists cared more about um, fitting the data more and some scientists cared more about like the hope for a more simple model. And that allowed, you know, we, we, we kept getting secure, good, um, empirically well-grounded astronomy in light of the Ptolemaic model. But we also had some people working on developing the Copernican model until eventually it was a way was found to like have this thing match up with the data and it turned out to be the better theory overall. And so there is kind of having scientists who just like cared about different things, um, that turned out to be a useful way. Like, what are you looking at when you, um, what are you looking for when you evaluate a new theory? And so having that kind of diversity of, of what you're concerned with, what you care about, and again, I should really stress that I'm drawing on Kevin Zolman's work here because I just discussed this with him. Um, that turns out to be another, like, really nice way to, um, to sort of get and ensure some amount of diversity in the scientific community. And you can maybe get a similar thing, this is also related to the stubbornness point, actually, by having scientists with different kinds of life experiences. So this is the kind of thing which can get very spicy on, on the internet. Ooh, it's that standpoint epistemology. Yeah, it's related, right? Like, uh, because, it, you know, so it turns out that like, different kinds of backgrounds, different kinds of life experiences will in some fields, not in all fields, but in some fields will make different kinds of hypotheses seem, um, seem plausible or tempting as an initial guess to you. Um, so this isn't actually an example of diversity being useful because you can maybe argue that one of these perspectives is just wrong. It wasn't that useful. Um, but, you know, so classically in the history of, um, the American civil war and, um, reconstruction afterwards, um, there was a school which had, um, which more or less put it that reconstruction failed because, uh, the northern carpetbaggers um, worked with corrupt local black politicians and sort of made such an incompetent system that it had before. And probably, um, like, why this was promoted was because the, the main people involved in that school of history, gentlemen of the South, and so that seemed plausible to them. And they also actually they hoped it would promote reconciliation and peace between the North and the South. We can go into that another time. And then that was challenged by um, famously W.B. Du Bois, a, a black historian who was like, well, I, you know, I don't think it's plausible as a first guess that, you know, all of the black people were just corrupt and all of the Southern gentlemen were just pure people looking for a better system. And he came up with a different history of reconstruction, which is nowadays more accepted by, by contemporary historians. And so it seems there that like what happened is what seemed initially plausible was kind of a function of what kind of life experience you had and what kind of person you were. And in that case, maybe it's not really diversity being useful, just they were just wrong and you need someone to come along and do better. But if you are looking for a way of generating diversity, that can be useful in the field where that applies because it just means people are going to come in and approach things from different kinds of perspectives. So that, that's another way of doing it. Um, and I said a third thing. So I, you know, you'd think I would have a third um, way of generating diversity. And hopefully if I talk for long enough, I will remember what I was going to say, because that third thing was, oh yeah, limiting communication. Ha, I did it. I win. Wonderful. Um, 
<laughs> well so, done. We're going to give you a medal later. I I a medal. Give me a zero, you know. Like, um, but um, the the third thing was limiting communication. So another proposal that's been made is you can try and sort of um, get scientists to not share all of their results, in the, at least initially, for some period. And so, for instance, in the big on um, physics experiments, there will be different groups working on the same topic, but they're not allowed to share their research with each other in order to ensure like an independent judgment between the two of them. And that's meant to sort of get some of the benefits of having different people trying different approaches, but within the same experiment. And you can get away with it because the experiment is so huge. You can have people who just don't talk to each other basically about, about the results. And um, more generally, people in my field have looked at sort of like mathematical models of what happens if you assume that there's like not much information sharing for some set period of time. And it really can help get the benefits in a kind of intuitive way of diversity because people just sort of attempted to go down different paths and they don't learn of the evidence from their peers, which might untempt them or sway them in the same direction. And so like, yeah, those are the three main methods like um, stubbornness, um, diverse, um, diversity in terms of life experience or values and um, communication limitation. That last one sounds very like um, my housemate recently made a new Negroni recipe and he made uh, uh, me and one of the other housemates try it, but he made us sit in different rooms. <laughs> um, <laughs> we wouldn't be influenced. Sorry? Is if, my pledge to you is if I can somehow get it in print that, uh, that this is the Negroni method of um, preserving scientific diversity, I will do that and I will credit you in this podcast. That's my, that's my pledge. Wonderful. I think I'd prefer you bought me a Negroni, but um, <laughs> that's also good. <laughs> um, I know that you also, uh, um, you have also are on record as saying that you are um, opposed to the current system of peer review or you think that the, the way the current system of peer review works is, is unhelpful. Uh, could yeah. you say something about that? Yeah, I think I said before as well that this is bizarrely the opinion of mine which has like generated most controversy in my life. Um, and I have very spicy opinions on Twitter.com, so that's not trivial. But um, so, um, so a co-author and, my, uh, and me, Chaim uh, Kohaisen, is my co-author. So we have this paper called "Is Pre-Publication Peer Review a Good Idea?" And we argue in a, we argue in a paper that it's not a good idea. And our reason for thinking it's not a good idea is it's kind of like a sort of a culmination of a bunch of work that we've done also that we've read other people doing elsewhere. And, you know, the intuitive case is kind of a simple one, that this is an expensive process, and it's literally expensive because the um, publishing industry in academia is ultra-exploitative and takes a bunch of our money. That's often public money. Um, so it's literally expensive. And also it takes up a lot of time. And like the the work hours of a huge amount of people with PhDs, like who could be doing other things with their time and intellectual efforts. And so there's some kind of question of like, what are we getting for all of this investment in it? Like, is there any evidence that it's doing the things which it's meant to be doing for us? And people like confidently assert it is. You know, it's this general belief that what it does is it helps us like filter out very bad work and then ensure that our attention is directed only to work which is at least somewhat good and hopefully very good if you sort of direct your attention to work that's in the fancier journals. And in that way, we have a kind of quality control mechanism in science. And what, and so what we do is we look through the evidence about, um, about what peer review is actually achieving, and we try and compare it to what could be achieved under a system where you have 
art manuscripts are put online in something like um, Archive, which is a kind of a free distribution method, which is currently very popular in some parts of physics and maths. And we, we like say, like you know, could should we expect in that world, in the world where we're putting things on archive of only very very minimal review and nothing like the current review system, should we expect lower quality work, or should we expect our direct our attention will be directed as well, or etc.? Should we expect the various things which peer review is meant to do for us to go worse without it? And we find that there's basically the evidence never bears out. The evidence never bears out that we're getting something out of peer review. It's not actually supported by the quite significant amounts of um, sociological and economic, in some cases, research, which has gone into the peer review system. Now, so that's what, and so we argue that, you know, on present evidence, it doesn't look like it's, it's worth having. It doesn't look like it's doing anything for us. Now, we, we do try and be clear that, like, you know, sometimes we just think that really what's needed here is more evidence. Like, so our, kind of our conclusion is people need to go away and study these things because it's not clear. But, but even then, you know, like there's this presumption in favor of the system and there's and we're spending so much on it. I think more should be required here than just it might not be doing any harm. Like we, if this thing was working for us, it should be showing up somewhere when we try and study it. And 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 we don't think that is. We, we don't think the current evidence is really bearing that out. And so that's that's what we've argued. And we found that this roughly seems to like. Really, really seems to polarize people. Some people read this and they're like, they're really into it. They think it's they think it's really a really important point. It has some very positive feedback. I don't want to say it's all been hostile, not cool. But some people read it and they just they just hate it. You know, they, so they act like we're trying to sort of like tear down the pillars of civilization or something. And so you know, it, it, it gets very mixed. It seems to me absurdly exploitative of academics, um, but I won't even get onto the topic of how hierarchical and exploitative academe is, um, because I'll be on that topic all day. But also it's, um, I think this is one of the things that you point out, you're relying on the opinion of one or two people, um, rather than, um, rather than putting it out there into the public space where you could have multiple scientists responding, um, where you have just a much wider group of people looking at it and potentially pointing out errors. Um, And other scientists in whose interest it is, who are perhaps the competitors, um, who have an incentive to find whatever faults may be there or to use it if it's working well, who, who actually have an incentive to examine it closely and will be interested in examining it closely rather than being sort of forced to do so um, in this exploitative system in order to fulfill some service requirement at their universities or whatever it might be. Yeah, so this is why in the paper at least we're, we're careful to say that what we are opposing or is what we're suggesting should be rethought is pre-publication peer review. We're, we're opposed to kind of like filtering out what kind of work is a potential subject of community attention, depending on a couple of people, as you say, like looking at it before it gets out there. In some sense, what we want is more peer review, not less. We want it to be like possible for like more people to quickly weigh in. And in that way, we think like the manuscript and archive system is better because it actually facilitates more of that. Now, you know, there are complications and difficulties here, right? Because, you need there's a lot of papers that are put out there, and you need some way of like bringing work to people's attention. And so we do a little bit about how that would go. So again, I don't want to pretend it's easy, um, just from my experience of the, the hate mail we'll get. Um, but 
you know, even then, you know, we try and make the case in the paper, and hopefully we can we can link it underneath um, that we we think that this thing could go this thing could go better without peer review. And actually, currently we're working on a follow up paper with uh, with another co author. I haven't got permission to discuss yet. I don't know what I should say, but like you know, we're, we're trying to think a little bit more concretely about how you could organize a system which would help work get the attention it needs um, in a, in a timely fashion without um, going via pre-publication peer review. So like we do take from seriously and we're trying to work on it. So um, I'm not sure how to phrase this question actually, but um, I, I listened to a short, I think I've listened to all the talks that you've ever given now on my, on my recent walks. I, uh, <laughs> no, it's been fascinating. Um, you talk about, you contrast two possible uh, futures and you talk about approaches to, I think, to science, to knowledge sharing, to society, um, which are um, pessimistic versus optimistic. There's a kind of Star Trek post-scarcity future, um, yeah. which yeah. doesn't happen until after the 21st century, though. I think in 2020, I think the Bell riots are about to happen. So San Francisco will be even more aflame than it currently is. As we see, yeah, everyone on Twitter is like, "How did the Star Trek writers know?" <laughs> yeah, twenty twenty was an accursed year, um, and there's but but after the eugenics wars and all of that stuff is over, we have the um, we we have the post scarcity Star Trek future, at least in the Federation, and then the other option is the kind of Blade Runner future yeah. or the future of the Expanse uh, series. Now I'm not sure how to frame this as a question. Can you run with this prompt, or should I should I try to try to frame a better question for you? Well, I, I can talk a bit more about that event and sort of what I was going for there. So we were, we were mm, asked, yes, please do. We were asked by um, our lords and masters, the administration, to come up with a brief presentation of how we thought the future could go in the good case and how we thought it could go in the bad case of, as it especially relates to our research. You know, broadly um, construed how science and technology and also the way we communicate could develop because I'm a social epistemologist. I'm interested in both producing knowledge and disseminating knowledge, which, you know, broadly I talked about communicating with each other. And I thought that, like, two ways this could go. Like, there really is a case that, like, there are a lot of, we're doing more research now. If we're done, there are like there are more people getting involved in the sciences than at any point before. Um, like there is a kind of success breeds success effect in science, a cumulative advantage effect, where the more we know, like it makes it at least possible, not always actually plays out, but it is possible that we can use that to develop um, new ideas and new perspectives. And there's this way in which we, we might get see is sort of. Um, a growth in our efficiency. I mean, maybe not like the full Star Trek post-scarcity world, but like at least like we'll, we'll know ever more and what's more, that communication will evolve together. Like um, that, that talk was actually just after there had been a flashpoint um, in, in tensions between India and Pakistan. And at the time I made it, I was really struck by the fact that there was this like global outpouring of people. And I really think it might have contributed to like Modi pulling back where like people around the world were saying and standing with people in India and Pakistan who were also putting on social media, like, you know, we don't want war. There's got to be a way of like resolving this, which doesn't involve like a tense exchange between nuclear powers. 
And I just, you know, that, at that moment, it just felt to me that there's kind of, kind of like harnessing this to, to like foster empathy for one another and, and to use these technologies in a way which like promote like peace and, and, and communal togetherness on a cosmopolitan scale. And then the Blade Runner future, on the other hand, is kind of where that goes wrong. So sure, like in the Blade Runner world, I, I still think probably we're going to see technical advances. I, I don't really see that going anywhere. I think the, the things which incentivize that and make that possible are like likely to happen even in kind of dark, pessimistic visions of the world. And so it's not like my vision, my pessimistic vision of the future is one where, you know, we revert to the sticks and stones rather than high tech. But um, rather, the specific vision of the world is while our technology and our scientific capacity does improve, um, the we're not driven together, but like the the worst trends on social media try, make us ever more cynical and ever more um, distrustful and ever more like isolated, even as we're massively globally connected. And so somehow we end up in a world which kind of everything is kind of meaningless and gray and alone. And even when like we have the capacity to do wonderful, fantastic things, it's, it's somehow, not only is it never realized like, worse than that, we don't even think to realize it. We don't think of ourselves as the kind of beings who could, who could work together and come together and achieve great things by, by, by means of solidarity and by means of like, assisting one another and so like that i take to that to be like a, a genuine negative possibility i sometimes see trends in social media which have me thinking that that's the way things are going to go and so you know i i try to present two scenarios both of which i take to be plausible both of which i take to be like i can really see the seeds of them in, in contemporary both technical and communicative or social social arenas and i i don't know which of those i think we're heading for um, but that, that was the mm, idea. Yeah. Mm. Um, are you the kind of person who feels that the problems that we are creating, say environmentally, we are likely the best solution is more technology, or do you feel the best solution is behavior change? Do you have an opinion on on that? Uh, I mean, this is this is very complicated. So I, I'm I'm not fully confident what I'm about to say, but here's what I'm saying. My sense is that technical change is too unpredictable for it to be rational to bet on it. Like we are more confident in what can be done by means of behavioral change. And we should and given what's at stake, like in terms of lives and quality of life and global inequality and a million other things, we shouldn't it would be irrational to take the risk of betting on a super tech. We should rather um we should rather like engage pretty rapidly in some pretty big behavioral changes. Um, and, you know, and actually I worry about this. I mean, I've got a, a good friend of Taiwo who talks about this a lot. And I mean, there are two other from Taiwo. I'm referring to the, the little one at Georgia. He's sorry, at Georgetown. He's going to listen to this and love that. I refer to him as the little one. Hey, hey, Fanny. Um, so, um, where what one of the people that is here, some people I think already are planning their behavioral responses to um to climate change. And their plan is basically if you're a wealthy northern hemisphere country, it's you know, post troops along the border, um, shoot anyone who tries to come in and anyone who sneaks through put them in a put them in a prison and put them in a camp. And, you know, we can wait it out. And that I think is a dystopian behavioral change that's just horrific. It's genocidal on the, on the scale at which 
that could be made to carry out. And if we're to avoid that, we need to like start changing our institutions and start changing our policies to have a better togetherness. So that, that's that's what I say. But the reason I'm unconfident in that is like if it turned out that by just investing a bit more in the science, there is some, um, you know, there is some tech which will I, I don't know do some magic basically and solve our climate change worries. That would be great because then we could get the advantages of of growth and the advantages of um, of greater prosperity, which I imagine some of the behavioral changes that are actually going to be necessary will take away from us. And I, I, you know, I just basically think I don't. I mean, I don't think we should, and I don't think we're going to sort of go full, you know, regression to a pre-industrial state in the the Northern Hemisphere. But I do think the rich Western nations are probably going to have to accept a drop of standard living on average. I, I think that should just apply. Um, and, you know, so I, I think we're going to have to pay a cost. And if there was a magic tech, that would be nice. Um, but I just don't think we can afford to bet on it, given who, how many people are going to suffer and the, the vast extent of that suffering. Thanks. Um, I wanted to talk to you about, well, this is such a huge topic that I don't know if we can get into it and um i don't know i just solved climate change for you. I, I, you know. <laughs> um okay so liam tell me about the different conceptions of the nature of truth oh okay never mind let's go back to climate change <laughs> <laughs> um yeah this was of course um what was behind your uh i say your like our a very polite friend on twitter's question right like why are philosophers still talking about the nature of truth um, and so, uh, what's, what's going on there is a kind of, um, I've spoke recently about there are sort of three classic theories of the nature of truth. One of which is the, the correspondence theory, um, according to which, uh, a, a sentence or an utterance or a proposition is true just in case it corresponds to a fact. And so there, there the idea is, you know, if I say the cat is on the map, then that sentence is true just in case there's a fact. And that fact is that there's a cat, there's a map, and the one is on top of the other. And the, the fact is those things being arranged in that way. Um, so that's the correspondence theory of truth, at least in its classic old-fashioned form. Um, there's the coherence theory of truth, which says, well, what we have are sort of like not just individual sentences or individual propositions. We have sort of like total theories or networks of propositions and so i don't just have the cat is on the mat i have that i'm in this room that this room is in normal lighting conditions that cats look like this that mats look like that um that i haven't taken any hallucinatory drugs or whatnot and you know all of these things together form a kind of coherent um, coherent whole and so when i say the cat is on the mat that's true because it would be part of that coherent whole whereas if the cat wasn't on the mat then you know, you'd have to explain why it is that I seem to be seeing a cat on the map right now and it would be less coherent because I haven't taken any hallucinatory drugs, I can see it clearly, my eyesight is fine, etc. And so there the coherence theory of truth has that a uh, claim is true just in case it's part of the kind of the maximally coherent network of sentences or propositions or whatnot. So that's one. And and then the third classic theory is the, the pragmatist theory. And the pragmatist theory comes in different versions um, where... Uh, the sort of one version of it, sort of uh, one influential version of it, says that um, 
what's true is just what's like good by way of belief. And and, and what that slogan means is kind of, so our, our beliefs have like, they serve some kind of purposes for us. They're like part of our mental lives and they help us live our lives and organize our activities in a certain kind of way. And the claim is a true claim just in case it like helps you succeed in the actions you're going to take. And so, you know, if I believe um, the cat is on the map, then, you know, for instance, if I'm going to pick up the cat, I should take the time to, um, if I'm going to pick up the mat, I should take the time to move the cat off it. And if I want to attract the cat to me, as a way of doing it, put a bowl of milk near the mat, etc. And if there's no cat on the mat, then those things are going to be a waste of my time and not going to be effective, respectively. And so it's good by way of belief. And so it's true that there's a cat on the mat just because it would like work out when I predicate my actions on the assumption that there's a cat on the mat there. And, and that, so that's the, that's the classic theory. And there are other versions too. In fact, some versions of it can even look like the, the logical empiricism or logical positivism, which we mentioned at the start. But in any case, these are like three of the classic theories of truth. And, um, you know, all, all of them, of course, have problems. And so I think what our, our good friend, the good people of the internet, um, was talking about is, you know, how is it that philosophers are still still arguing about these? Like, why haven't you solved what truth is? Like, wasn't you know, weren't people talking about what truth is back when Aristotle was writing? And I think what to say to this is basically that, you know, while there are certainly problems with all of those, while none of those could you could just accept straightforwardly, as as I stated them, um, as a theory of truth, we have learned so much in philosophy about what truth is and how it operates. Like we're not starting from the same place. Like the degree of sophistication in those theories in responding to problems that you can raise and in integrating them with theories in logic and mathematics has just been raised massively. And so like these are like the classic theories of truth. But actually, if you went into a, a contemporary research journal and look at work on truth, it often is like very technical. It's it's very um at this point it's like kind of a, a branch of logical maths. And so, you know, it, it really actually has been um converted into a sort of a progressive technical field in many respects. Um, and I think that tells us something about uh, the nature of philosophy and the nature of inquiry, where a lot of what we do in, in my field is exactly um, try and um, precisify things or try to uh, put, put people in a position where they can study something precisely and clearly. And if you do that enough, then people will stop calling it philosophy and we won't get the credit for it. But... Um, that doesn't mean that nothing was done. It's just, you know, it's not being recognized as a philosophical achievement at some point. Sorry, you asked me about the nature mm -hmm. of truth. And I ended up truth, but, no, you yeah. gave a very good explanation. Um, I mean, I can immediately see some problems, but I think that these might be very uh, superficial um, takes on it. I mean, the co coherence theory, it would be possible, of course, to have a, a theory that was completely incoher uh, internally incoher uh, internally coherent, but also bollocks. Um, so, um, for example, you know, homeopathy or astrology or something like that. It would be possible to have a system, a way of explaining the world that hung together perfectly, um, but just bore no relationship to no provable relationship to reality. Um, yeah, yes. So that's certainly, I mean, so that, that actually, you say it's a superficial concern, but, and, you know, of course, there are things that coherent theorists can say, right? Because they can say, well, you know, homeopathy is coherent if you only, internally, if you only look at kind of homeopathy. 
But actually, you know, you have a, a bunch of other things which you're observing too in your total picture of the world. Well, like, you know, will actually include the evidence that you have about um, the success rate of homeopathy, which is very bad. It doesn't actually bear out. And so the total coherent picture couldn't really include, wouldn't be include homeopathy because it wouldn't be coherent of all of the evidence you have of its failure in the long run. I mean, that presumably is why you don't think it's true after all. Um, and so, like, there are things which coherence theorists can say in response to that. But, like, you know, on the whole, I think that just pushes it one step back. Like, you can just say, you can just say, like, well, hold on, no, no, hold on. I can come up with, like, a very coherent theory, which includes an explanation of why I haven't seen um, uh, evidence of homeopathy's success so far, and includes explanation of, like, why I haven't noticed that I'm not seeing this for that bad reason, and et cetera. And on the whole, I just have a, like a totally coherent fiction. And I, and I do think that is, in the end, a worry for coherent theorists. There are actually other kind of a little bit sophisticated worries about um, coherence theorists as well. So this, is, this one's from Bertrand Russell, for instance. The worry is that like, um, actually the coherence theory can't explain like its own basic assumptions. And so the idea is that um, the coherence theory is assuming that no contradictions are true. Like being contradiction, being contradictory is kind of like being maximally incoherent in some way. But the problem is, is if I compare like two theories, one of which assumes the one of which assumes the theory of con the principle of non-contradiction that there are no true contradictions, and the other which does not assume that, then it's not actually obvious the second one is going to be less coherent because internal to that theory, coherence is just going to mean something very different and maybe it's not coherent, incoherent by its own lights. And so it looks like the um, coherence theorist isn't going to be able to explain why it is that we should accept the things they're using to define what it means coherence, what it means to be coherent. Um, wait, how, wait, how could something be internally coherent with contradictions? Is that, I mean, is that anything like a, something being a particle and wave at the same time? Um, does that does that kind of cause any problems for coherence theories? So that shouldn't do because um, now you know my knowledge of physics is roughly, you know, the proposition heavy things go down, which I think is actually false. So I'm, I'm not the right person to ask here. Um, yeah, I'm a philosopher of science. Come at me, here. Um, so, um, but like that shouldn't actually be a problem for the coherence theory because ultimately it should be that when you look at the details of the physical theories, like it sounds kind of contradictory or paradoxical to say something as soon as it's the particle in a wave, but to the extent that we think it's true that there is actually a consistent explanation of what's being said. Um, but it does, however, turn out to be possible to um, at least build technical or build mathematical theories, which really don't assume that contradictions are false, wherein you can have true contradictions. And they just have a different, and within those theories, they have a different notion of what it means to be sort of like ruled out categorically, what it means to be sort of incoherent in the right kind of way. Um, and so then the worry is, is that there's no way a, a coherence theorist can sort of decide between these. Like there's, there's going to be no fact about which of these is true, maybe, or the way of telling which of those is true, another way of understanding it. Because the coherence theorist is like, they're all just going to define what it means to be coherent differently based on their sort of different underlying logics or the different underlying logical assumptions. And, and that's going to get in the way. So it, it's not going to be things like... Um, it's not going to be things like something as simultaneously a wave and a particle. There's going to be like pretty directly just claims of the form like P and not P, just like directly a contradiction. And those contradictions are going to turn out. 
possible within some mathematical logical systems. And so that, that that's the worry, at least. And so that, 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 that move looks like, you know, maybe there are things coherent theorists can say in responses as well, but that move is at least going to be sort of harder to, for them to make superficial responses to, I think. The third, the third theory of truth, I do want to come back to the correspondence theory, but the third one, which is about how, what is, what, um, what is useful for you to believe, is that, is Jordan Peterson's theory a very crude version of that, his kind of Darwinian theory of truth, which I, I think I can't, don't want to get into in too much depth because it gave me a migraine when I heard him try to explicate it on Sam Harris. Um, because, uh, you know, I mean, in a Darwinian sense, is there is there anything adaptive in thinking something is true when it isn't? You know, if I think there isn't a tiger there, and there is, then I'm going to be lunch. Um, I mean, there is a there's there's a kind of there there's an obvious sort of evolutionarily adaptive value to to knowing how to knowing the truth of things. Um, right, so that kind of that idea that what is true is useful to you seems uh, seems like a fancy way of talking about wishful thinking. I mean, in this very crude um, version, um, maybe you can give the more sophisticated <laughs> version objection. Well, so look, I mean, I think I, I've listened to the, the the discussion between Harris and Peterson where Jordan just came up. And I, I actually think um, Peterson just name checks the pragmatist philosophers when he's saying this. I, I'm I'm pretty confident that, that, yeah, what he has in mind is is the pragmatist theory of truth. And he mentions William James, who is the person who came up with the slogan I mentioned, and the pragmatists themselves. Now they didn't do it in quite the way Peterson did it, but they did indicate that they thought they were sort of bringing a Darwinian perspective to the matter. Now they, they didn't say the same things as Peterson, but they, they, they also thought there was some connection to Darwin at least. So Oh, okay. But explain. Well no, so what what I can say is I, I don't think that this idea sort of reduces to or is the same as and, and the way Peterson discussed it makes it sound like it is. Um at least the way he discussed it in an interview with Harris. Um it's not the same as kind of what's true is something like a belief that would have been useful in uh, and, and would have been an adaptive in an evolutionary environment or is currently adaptive for you because so for one thing that can just kind of have nothing to do with um, I mean you know it looks like it can just be kind of adaptiveness neutral to say there is a pen on my desk currently now as it happens there is a pen on my desk currently so it's true but it has kind of like nothing to do with what's useful in the sense of um help me pass on my genes unless there's someone who has a really specific kink, I guess. And so um, it's not, you know, P- Peterson ties it too closely to um, like, you know, evolution just in the sense of shagging basically. Um, but um, nonetheless, I think like the sort of the sophisticated objections to this, some of them are going to look pretty similar to what you said, right? Which is like, it does seem like there are beliefs which are just going to be false. I think I've given this example before somewhere, but like, you know, you can just you can just imagine someone thinking like, okay, it really it gives me kind of confidence, a kind of joy de vivre. Hey, maybe it even does help help me in my sexual endeavors. Who knows? To like think that there's a diamond buried at the bottom of my garden, and I never ever want to dig it up. I never want to do anything. I just want to sometimes reflect 
the diamonds that were buried at the bottom of my garden and that will like, help me get out in the world. And it just isn't a diamond at the bottom of your garden. And so even though it's like to- all your actions that you actually predicate on this will be good, um, it just, you know, that doesn't, it doesn't look right. Like it's false. Now, of course, there are also things pragmatists can say. They can say, for instance, yeah, but if you did go and dig, you wouldn't find the diamond. And, and surely that that has to mean something, right? And so like, well, at least one action would fail if you tried to do it. But, you know, and, and, and so did the debate will go. Uh, but it's just a point of saying, like, there is some worry that one of the things that pragmatism does is it just kind of, um, it, it allows for wishful thinking. It kind of, it, it ends up licensing as true claims which shouldn't come out as true intuitively. And, and if, if you listen to, like, the Sam Harris um, and Peterson discussion, it's this kind of, like, excruciating process of Sam Harris trying to say in a million ways, like, but what if, it was really useful for you to believe a false thing. And, you know, and, and that's kind of the discussion that happened. Um, so another worry people have about pragmatism is exactly the same worry people have about the logical empiricists. And it's kind of a version of what I just said about the pen, but in a, in a fancier case. It looks like there are some beliefs which are like intuitively candidates for truth or falsity, but which aren't obviously things which are going to... Um, help us fail or succeed in life and mm-hmm. so in certain kind of like like maybe you know abstract claims of metaphysics right you know if i believe that uh everything is self-identical um people, many people think that's true um or at least it's, it's a candidate for truth but it's at least not obvious that it actually that there's anything which practically turns on me believing that and maybe that one's a bit too complicated because maybe that one's a, not a good case because you sort of it plays a role in some mathematical systems, so it might play a role in science. But then consider things along the lines of, um, you know, the universe wasn't created as it is five minutes ago, history but rather really existed six minutes ago and beyond. Now that looks like you know that looks like that should be true the universe wasn't created five minutes ago etc but it also looks like it's not the kind of thing which is going to make a difference to anything being useful or not useful it's just it's just irrelevant it's a kind of quirky metaphysical claim and so if you have the instinct that that kind of claim should be true or at least a candidate for being true um then pragmatism looks like it's going to be in trouble because it's uh you know, if, if what's true is what's good by way of belief, then this isn't really good by way of belief, it's irrelevant by way of belief. And so it's not going to be captured. And also, I think you pointed this out in your podcast when you were talking to Sean Carroll. Um, if what is true is what is useful, then it depends on what your aim is. And that implies that if you change your aims, then what is true would change. Yeah, um, and I think that's actually one of the things Peterson is trying to do by tying pragmatism to like you know the direct purpose of continuing one's genetic line he's trying to like fix what the goal is and prevent you from varying that thing mm. but you know that that kind of that's a kind of violation of the is ought gap right like yes we're evolved creatures and yes presumably continuing our genetic line plays some role in the decisions we make um but it doesn't mean it ought to they're not forced to have that goal like that's that's just one goal we, we might in fact, tend to have for for reasons of different history, um, but like that's not the only goal, and you can vary the goal. And again, people, this is what's important. But yeah, like yes, a worry people might have is, you know, it shouldn't change what's true, 
for me to change what my goal is, like for different things becoming useful to me. So, you know, deciding actually I do want to dig the bottom of the garden shouldn't, that shouldn't be what makes it false that there's a diamond there, right? Like mm. what makes it false that there's a diamond there is there's no diamond there, right? Mm. And so, um, Pragmatism looks like it just sort of like picks up on the wrong things about. Although intuitively, that does sound like a kind of truth of Murphy's law, that you know, if I have a problem with my computer and and I ask somebody who knows about computers to take a look at it, suddenly the computer is working. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think that's the wrong. You know, so Murphy's law is the kind of the deep metaphysical fact that everything always goes wrong, right? mm-hmm. um, and maybe that's to believe even though it's in fact true and so pragmatism is going to get the wrong answer um, I mean Murphy's law is true isn't it that's the nature of entropy things are always getting steadily worse I, I'm not going to commit on record to Murphy's law being true so, <laughs> so. <laughs> um, so what what are the issues yeah. with the correspondence theory of truth ah yes so th- this is another one which has turned out to be culture war spicy it, it, and kind of I, I, I've stopped doing it now but I used to find it very funny that the correspondence theory of truth became cultural spicy because it's such a such a kind of abstract thing to get worked up about. But okay, here we go. So the correspondence theory of truth, um, as as I said, it says that a claim or a sentence or a proposition or whatever a belief is true, just in case it corresponds to the facts. So the facts really are as the as the as the sentence says. And so the worries for this traditionally have been explaining what's meant by correspondence and explaining what's meant by fact. And so the thought is that you know, if you just leave at the sentence, you know, a claim is true just in case it corresponds to the facts, that, that it's not very explanatory, right? Like, you know, you've just used a bunch of other fancy philosophy words, not clear what they mean. And what's more, they kind of just sound a lot like like it's close to just being a sort of uninformative synonym of of true in the first place, like the facts or whatever. And so, okay, they've already got far. So the, so the challenge then is to try and get further, to try and actually say something which sounds like you're illuminating here, you're, you're being explanatory, you're telling us what truth is in some deeper way mm-hmm. than just repeating the truth is what truth is. And um, here it's turned out to people have a lot of worries about the ingredients which go into this. And so, you know, I've got a, a friend, uh, Tom Breed, on, on Twitter, um, Beanie, I call him. And, and, and Beanie likes to say that whenever he wants to reassure himself that the correspondence theory of truth is false, he just thinks about something outside the like, his light cone. And the idea is, is that the correspondence theory of truth says, apparently, like, by forming a belief or a sentence, I kind of enter into this relationship with something like of the correspondence relationship. Um, and this is apparently instantaneous. It can go like infinite distances and can just like reach out to the world and kind of refer to it in some way or, or grab onto it. And people are like, what the hell is that? Like, what are you talking about? Correspondence, like relationships. What are those things? Where would we see them and how do they work? And these facts, like, okay, I get that there are cats and there are mats and sometimes they sit on each other. Does that mean there's a separate thing, which is the fact that the cat is sitting on the mat? Like, where does that thing come from? I don't see that. I only see cats and mats. And so the worry is that kind of the correspondence theory of truth, it sounds very simple, but then it quickly becomes like metaphysically mysterious if you take seriously the the elements which are meant to go into it. And, you know, as I said, I, I don't really view this to be a decisive objection, right? Like, you know, um, philosophers are hardly averse to doing some spooky metaphysics, right? So you needn't view this as a killer for it, but it, it's been enough to put many people off. It's enough, it's enough to make people think, 
that like probably uh, a non-mysterious vision of the view of the world, you know, just doesn't involve having to explain why there are facts on top of cats and mats and these correspondence relations that somehow sort of reach out and pick out bits of the world at infinite distances instantaneously and et cetera, right? Like, you know, they just try to do away with that whole machinery and that moves them away from the correspondence theory of truth. So it's uh, basically to say something is true doesn't add anything to just saying the cat is on the mat is exactly the same as to say it is true that. So that it is true that is just, it's kind of meaningless. Is that correct? Well, so, so yeah, so like uh, a contemporary and popular theory, um, which is kind of sort of a rival to all of the three I just mentioned, the three classic ones. So a much more recent theory to take note is what's called um, the inflationary theory, or it has its work in has origins in the work of an English uh, logician who called it Ramsey, who called it uh, the redundancy theory. Yeah, and according to that theory, then according to Ramsey's version at least, then uh, yeah, saying it's true that there's a cat on the mat is just you know, it's redundant. If you're saying the same thing as there's a cat on the map, there's no, nothing new is added to it. It might be useful by way rhetorically to lay emphasis in certain situations, or it might be useful in order to refer back to things without repeating yourself. So you can say the cat is on the map. Yep, it's true. You know, and I, you know, I've kind of just repeated the cat is on the map, the cat is on the map, but in a, in a present fashion. Or I can use it to refer to what you said. So I don't remember what you said earlier, but I remember I agreed of it. So I can say what I own. It's all. It's that's always true. There, I'm doing it too. That what you just said is always always applies. So, you know, there's. Um, uh, I, I'm going to have to get you back for that later, but I will find a way. <laughs> um, there's these kind of. So, the, you know, truth plays this kind of linguistic or, or rhetorical role for us, but it doesn't really add anything beyond that. And so that's a view of truth which has, and, you know, again, like all of the, the first version of any idea always needs work. And so, of course, there's been lots of development trying to work out problems with this, but that's the rough idea. And, um, you know, this has turned out to be um, popular with with many philosophers, it's probably not the majority of you still, but it's a, it's a popular one, it's a contemporary one. Um, and this, the thought is, it kind of, it captures the sense that kind of, you know, why is it true that there's a cat on the map? Well, because there's a cat on the map, right? Like, that's, that's it. That's all I need to tell you to explain why it's true. It captures that sense of like, you know, what matters to the truth of there is a cat on the map, it's just the cat and the map and one being on the other. Um, and it also kind of um, has been the basis, or at least has been, useful or related to a lot of the technical mathematical work which i mentioned earlier and so people have thought this is kind of a fruitful and useful way of um of of doing things but you know it too has its problems and so i as i mentioned before and so you know one classic problem which you can mention people think it just kind of like misses out on an important thing about truth which is that truth is in some sense not neutral right like it's a good thing to have the truth and you've failed in your belief or failed in your utterance if you if you don't say the truth in some intuitive sense right and so the the, the example you know the analogy rather the illustration which is the classic one is from a from michael dummett where he says you know to explain truth without mentioning like you know it's good to have true beliefs or you've succeeded for true beliefs it'd be like explaining chess um where you explain what all the pieces look like and how they move, but don't explain that the point of the game is to like check the check your opponent. 
And, you know, if you don't know what check or putting them in mate, rather. And so if you don't know what it is to like put someone in mate, then you haven't really got chess, even if you know what the pieces do. And so even if you sort of know all of those rhetorical and linguistic facts about the role of truth in how we speak and converse, you haven't really understood truth until you've explained, until you know that it's good to say true things and bad to say false things. And then it's going to turn out that to explain why it's good to say true things and bad to say false things, you need to draw on the resources of like one of those other theories, pragmatism, coherence, or correspondence. And so you know, some people think that the the deflationary view or the redundancy view, it just it's gonna it's like incomplete. It's gonna miss out something really important about the nature of truth. But sometimes clearly it's good to say false things. So for example, if you're telling a story, uh, if you're writing a novel, um, or also if you are um, trying to, if the if the truth would, um, if the truth is, would would kind of make people think less of you, for example, it might be uh, it might be better to tell a lie, um, in order to get away with something, to avoid punishment, to be more popular. Um, so I I wonder whether that does that pose any problems? Yeah, you know, it's good and it can relate to. The discussion of fraud, right? Like you know, it, it's not always obvious the advantageous to all the true things. Um, so now, here I'm sort of speaking for people I don't necessarily agree with, but I, I think what people who have the intuition think is like there can be kind of reasons which override the local value of truth um, in any given case, and so it can be useful. Um, right now for you to say a false thing but you're always kind of like sacrificing something of value when you do that right so it would have you know truth has a kind of value of its own and maybe that value gets overridden by like other considerations in this scenario but the the value of truth was still there or still something good and valuable about the fact that claim is true rather than false it still succeeded in its aim qua belief or qua utterance in some sense um and so like the analogy might be something along the lines of you know, I, I promise my friend I'll, I'll post a letter for them. But then on the way to the post box, um, I realize I can only save a drowning child by diving into the river right now. It's good to keep promises and your sacrifice is nothing by not keeping the promise. But at the same time, clearly you did the right thing because it would be sort of bonkers to prioritize the promise over saving the child's life. And it would be the same here. You know, it, It's good to tell the truth, but it's like, you know, it can be better to you know, avert some disaster that would come about by telling the truth. So, you know, there's a classic example in philosophy um, from Immanuel Kunt of, uh, you know, someone comes along and you're pretty sure they want to murder your guest and they ask you, you know, is this person in your house right now? Mm-hmm. And a lot of people who have the intuition, right, you know, it's good to tell the truth, but and this is what Kant thought, but you might think, in this case, nonetheless, you should lie, mm-hmm. right? You know, mm-hmm. like... Uh, and so I think that would be the analogy that people would want to say or bring up to deal with cases like the ones you outlined. I'm not sure I believe that myself, tell truth, but, you know, there you go. So, Liam, I, I, I would like to talk to you about something that no one else has asked you about on a podcast, just for my personal satisfaction, um, which is one of the most striking things about you on Twitter is your self-deprecatory tweets. So you have this, um, uh, you, you very, very frequently write um, uh, 
you very, very frequently write these tweets denigrating yourself and talking about being a bad person. I think mostly about being a bad person. I think um, a couple of them refer to your appearance. I don't know if you ever... Um, uh, if you ever described yourself as stupid, I think that might be so patently untrue that um, even you, that it can't even be said in sort of jest. But um, <laughs> I, and it's been, um, it's one of the first things I sort of, that struck me when I encountered your Twitter account. And I was extremely puzzled by it. Um, at first I thought, well, he's fishing for compliments. You know, you wrote, I'm ugly or something. And I thought he wants people to say he's handsome, and then I realized that that was not that was not actually quite the thing. It was not manipulation um, of that kind. And uh, then I thought he's kind of he's sort of joking, um, and it's a it's an odd kind of joking. And then I realized that perhaps it's and this is what I wrote you about on letter that it's somewhere in between a kind of joking and, and serious, that the sort of jokey, ironic form allows you to express something that you really are feeling um, without it being either sort of dramatic, um, seeming like a kind of plea for attention or sympathy, um, but nevertheless, you really stick to it. Um, and when people kind of call you on it and say, yeah, you you don't mean that, Liam. You always say, no, I actually do mean that. Um, and I'm very, I, I find it quite peculiar, actually. And I do have a few other friends who also seem to have this extremely deep-seated, I don't know if it's a constant dislike, but a kind of tendency to um, towards self-denigration. Um, and it's always the people who are the most, um, the nicest, sweetest, kindest, handsomest, most intelligent people. So, and most charming people. So it's always the people who everybody else, or I guess it's not always. I'm sure there's some other examples. I'm sure there's some genuinely awful people who are also self-denigrating and um, who are maybe worse than what they're describing and are using self-denigration in the opposite way. But I'm just, um, again, I'm having problems framing this as a question, but I'm just uh, very, very puzzled by this. Have you always done this? And um, oh, how does it feel? And, and what, what, uh, what are you thinking when you, when you write these kinds of tweets? I mean, I should say for the record, I can think of at least one person who, I think is genuinely awful and frequently engages in self-denigration. So it is at least possible. Um, oh, yes, uh, of course. I, I mean, I actually, I can too now, but um, <laughs> in this specific case, it's different. Well, no, no, my, my joke was I was thinking of myself. <laughs> but okay. Um, so. No, 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 Liam. <laughs> so this is exactly what I mean. <laughs> um, so... Um, yeah, it's, I mean, I guess it's not too private. If it was that private, I wouldn't do it on Twitter, right? Like, so it's not too private, I can mm. talk about it. But um, yeah, so this is kind of a, a thing I, I, you picked up on the letter, really, and I just basically agree with it, that um, I think there's a lot in, uh, 
I mean, more American culture than British culture. British culture is a bit more accepting of self-integration. I, you know, I did my PhD in America, and that was when I first started using social media. So I was partly responding to trends or patterns were set when I was in America. Um, where it's, you know, it's it's often seen as as bad to be self-denigrating, or this is inadvisable, and um, you know, this is a real thing. But when I was thinking about like that, that Blade Runner future, the pessimistic outcome, um, you know, we are using social media to sort of build an impression of ourselves, build a brand in some way. And maybe like it's not good for your brand to, to advertise your flaws, your failings, um, what's, what's, what's worth about you and what you fear about yourself. Um, and I think a thing about that culture is it means that, you know, if you don't have an entirely positive self-image, it, it can lead to you sort of having to repress, having to um, ha- like not really share aspects of how you feel, of how you experience the world, um, of what what you take yourself to be doing in ways that can that can be painful. I think in its own way, like there's something painful about like thinking of yourself. I did a terrible job, but you know having to tell everyone I think I did a great job that kind of like mm, it's not a nice way to live and so yeah I found that like if if you if I did I mean if I, when I was less jokey about it when I was first doing this exactly what I found is that people will compliment you in response right they respond by you know if you say I think I'm you know stupid and ugly people will say I think you're you're beautiful and smart and that's no good either, right? Because if, if what one is trying to do is avoid a certain kind of inauthenticity, then that ends up feeling inauthentic in its own way. It feels like what you're doing, I mean, as you say, what you're doing is what, how your experience, I should say, is as fishing for compliments. And that's just a different way of being inauthentic. Whereas if you, um, if you find the right kind of humorous way of doing things, and, you know, and I think this is also sincere, like I do try and, where I can adopt a kind of, uh, where it's possible for me, I, I have trouble with it. I'm I'm a short-tempered person that gets in the way. But like, if I can adopt a kind of humorous or somewhat detached or ironic perspective on things, I, I like to be able to do that sometimes. I mean, one mm-hmm. of my favorite is Drumzer, and it's part of his persona. Um, and and like, you know, that that perspective or that way of expressing things allows you to sort of be authentic to yourself without invoking this response from other people that they feel the need to like contradict you or basically to disagree with you and and persuade you to the contrary and and, i I still feel that urge i'm afraid every time you post like that i I feel this deep urge to kind of persuade you otherwise which is which is very silly uh i mean why should you uh you know yourself better than i know you so why should you i barely know you we've met only once and other than that, I'm just a Twitter acquaintance. So in a sense, why should you take my word for it um, rather than rather than your own perception? I, I should say my, my auntie, who, Auntie Jodine, who I'm very close with, um, she actually for a while stopped following my Twitter because she just found this kind of unbearable. So, um, uh, you know, it, it's it's not... One worry really is is that, and and part of the reason for that is she just she had trouble sort of tracking what was jokey and what wasn't, and so you know it can be tough for people around you, and that's a reason to be careful with this. Um, with doing this, um, 
But yeah, I, I kind of, I, I don't, I admit, like, I find the instinct you have with kind of the want to disagree, it is a bit strange because, like, we are, you know, what's it to you? Like, I I really am an annoying idiot. Like, why, why are you trying to disagree with this? What's up? Yeah, I don't know. Um, I think that... I don't know why I find that so triggering, um, but I, I, I'm trying to take a deep breath and scroll on past and I see you making one of those remarks because I also, um, I did an entire podcast about, about self-esteem with Will Storr, which I'm going to recommend to people if they're interested in this topic. Um, I mean, I am not a fan of the cult of self-esteem. I think that self-esteem, high self-esteem is at the very least, a morally neutral thing. Um, I think that, you know, sometimes it can be just calm calm and justified confidence in yourself, which can be very, can be a very soothing and wonderful thing. And at other times, it can be a, a, a facade, so a form of dishonesty, uh, or also, um, you know, a kind of conceit, a sort of blindness to your limitations. And it can be extremely damaging. So I don't, I certainly don't think that uh, all all per- people, people's personality problems can all be traced ultimately to low self-esteem. Um, you know, those who seem like they're arrogant are overcompensating. So everything is in the end about low self-esteem. And I also don't I don't find high self-esteem in itself a very charming characteristic or or necessarily anything more than neutral. I would say it's 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 ethically neutral. And I really dislike the kind of idea of having a personal brand. I mean if that's inspiring to you, if you find it fun to have a personal brand, that's one thing. But if you're censoring and bodlerizing and kind of curating your your life to fit an image, then I find that also very superficial and hollow and, and unsatisfying. Um, so I don't, so I guess I, I want to say I don't want to discourage you. Um, and I do, I'm spotting a, this is a much more extreme example, so I don't want listeners to become alarmed. Um, but uh, so one of my closest friends um, committed suicide in 2018, and he wrote a long letter um, to his close friends, uh, which he, he he sent us an email which he had scheduled to arrive after he was already dead. And in the email, among other things, he said, and I thought this was very striking, he said, um, I know that many of you uh, are very, Um, are very fond of me and you are going to feel this is going to really upset you and you're also going to miss me and I know that I'm causing people pain but um, I am the one who is living I'm the one who has to live with being myself and being here inside me so it's really um um a really kind of that that has got to be a secondary consideration for me. You can't expect somebody else to be alive and in kind of suffering as much as I am suffering just because if they were gone, you would miss them. Um, so that was uh, that was quite an extraordinary letter. His pet he was already had been orphaned. His parents were dead, which 
that might have made a difference. So he was just talking about friends, not parents. Um, but uh, yeah, I've I've thought about that a lot. This kind of there is also a desire not to be. Um, I'm not. I don't want to make this sound like I'm being critical of your aunt and her response, but there is a kind of desire that people have not to be upset by somebody else's pain or suffering or low opinion of themselves or um, whatever it might be. Uh, that is actually quite self-centered. It's like I. My main feeling is I don't want to be upset. I don't know if I'm making any sense here. No, that, that does make sense. And yeah, Fiddler, yeah I, I really don't think that's what's going on with my aunt. I, I, I think her issue was she just couldn't tell what was jokey or ironic. It's just hard. But yeah, and also I'm, I should say I'm sorry to hear about your friend. That sounds like a very tragic experience. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I sort of related to this, like what's coming out of this. Another thing I think which this kind of ironic or or jokey self-deprecation, one of the things that can do for you, is um, it makes it possible to, it normalizes a kind of expressions of, of, of pain or upset or, or, or hurt in such a way that kind of like, you know, you, you don't feel this way. I mean, you, you don't feel that like, I can't express this because it'd be hurting other people because by this point, people are used to me expressing it. Like it's, it's not, People have like, built up a sense that, like, uh, you know, sometimes this person is sad or sometimes this person isn't doing so well. And so, you know, if you do ever want to kind of be more serious or get more real, as, as one says, um, then, like, already you've, like, built up a certain degree of, like, oh, well, you know, it's not going to blow everyone's mind that sometimes I'm sad, right? Like, you know, so, um, like, it, it, it does have that, I, I say that kind of, like, normalizing that degree of, uh, normalizing that it, it can be useful. Normalizing that sense that you know, not everything's going well, then it's okay to admit that. Now, you know, I, I'm not saying I, I think everyone should adopt the same uh, social media self-deprecation as I do. Um, partly because I'm awful, and so people should do what I do. Um, but like, uh, you know, I'm just saying this is if you do it, this is an advantage. Yeah, I think the authenticity is very important. And I find also when I might, I, I, I don't tend to be self-deprecating, um, but in general, I'm quite fond of myself. <laughs> so I, I actually don't, I don't have that kind of impulse. Uh, I rarely have that kind of impulse. But um, I did find that when I, um, so when I used to, I used to have a quite popular uh, tango blog. Um, so there may be 8,000 people reading per day. And I always found that when I wrote, an, when I got very drunk and I wrote an entry and I was crying as I was writing, I was feeling very sorry for myself and it felt completely self-indulgent. I always thought people were going to hate that, that, those entries. And those were always the entries that people liked the most. There's this weird kind of paradox that the more personal you are, like the more kind of intimately personal and specific it is to yourself um, and your individual feelings, the more um, universally relatable it becomes. It's so odd. It's like the thing that is you're keeping the most secret hidden away in yourself 
is the thing that we have most deeply in common that everybody else shares and recognizes when it comes to light. Yeah. You know, you know I've, I mean, this is funny. Um, I've been torn on this in some ways for almost this reason. So um, one of the sort of recent transitions in my life is I've gone from being a student to a teacher, right? So I was a PhD student and then I got the job. And so now I'm a, I'm an assistant professor. And that, I'm, you know, I've been trying to think about how that should change or whether it should change or where it should change how I interact with people online, right? And so one thing I've, I've been torn between thinking it's kind of a good thing for, um, to be open and out there about like what I struggle with and what, what I, what I think I'm good at, um, which is not much, <laughs> um, on, online because, you know, in some sense, uh, I'm, it's a minor one, but I now have a position of some degree of community responsibility and I, and I should try and like model a certain kind of openness or realness so let people know that you know they're not alone in that kind of way. On the other hand, um, I can sometimes be worried that kind of what I'm modeling is that something like it's miserable to be in this community and um, and I... Uh, if you if you if you become a philosopher, if you go into philosophy, it it won't be good for you. It will, it will be unhealthy or happy or unhappy in some kind of psychological way. And then I worry that I'm not really doing you know I'm not doing the community good there because that's that could to some extent it will be things about the you know well to some extent there will be systematic things and that'll be representative and that's fine. But to the other extent it'll be idiosyncratic facts about me and how I respond to things and I wouldn't want people to sort of get an impression that. I'm representative in that way. And so I, I, I have actually worried about the degree that people find it relatable. <laughs> That's been a, a source of concern for me. It's one of the things which sometimes makes me want to pull, pull back a bit. That's interesting. I would never even have thought of that. I would never have thought of it being related to your uh, professional career in any way. Um. <laughs> oh, it's funny. Well, I just think that so much of what I discuss online um, you know, it is is to do with philosophy because, like, you know, I, I'm a boring nerd, right? Like, I am a kind of obsessive. I, I do love, um, I do love philosophy, and so I talk about it a lot. And my name is a ref, my Twitter handle, right? As we what began with, is is a, just is a reference to this kind of outdated, outmoded at least um, philosophical movement. And so I think it's kind of easy to see um, what I do as a kind of like, in some ways, as representing my relationship to philosophy like, I, I do expect people to read mm. me that way and yeah but yes I mean I I do um but I I also you know often when I was writing about tango I was very specifically writing about things in tango that were causing me suffering I mean um there's there's a lot of kind of negative aspects to trying to make a living as a professional dancer uh for one thing um there's a lot of there's a, there there are a lot of intrinsic um difficulties emotional um baggage um that is associated with tango for example uh, famously you can't tango on your own <laughs> you know, i'm not going to say that i'm not going to utter that truism but the truism that everyone knows and that means that you are dependent on other people you're dependent on being chosen by another person and if you are partnerless in tango it's 
it's it it feels very like being partnerless in life but if you're partnered in tango it doesn't feel as good as being partnered in life so it's a kind of there's a kind of lose lose thing here um but it's but it never kind of occurred to me to worry about whether this was bad advertising for the dance even though one of my wishes is that more people would do should dance tango. Um, I think it would be a good thing for the world if more people dance tango, and I'm quite serious about that. Um, but it never occurred to me that that might be giving bad press. I think, I guess I think that the idea of having to advertise, having to kind of give good press, I have to, I'm too, I was um, I scored very high on low. I scored very low on agreeableness when I did the ocean, the big five personality test, and I think I'm just too uh, too disagreeable for that. I think it's more important to to um, say say what you actually think than to try to not exactly put a gloss, but edit so that it's only the only the good bits are showing. It's, it's to be clear. It's not that I want. A, it's not that I want an advertisement in that sense. It's not a good. I mean, you've already mentioned that it's like really hierarchical, for instance. And I wouldn't want to only. I wouldn't want to gloss over that. People should know about that coming in. My worry is more that there are features of my, you know, as is inevitable, right? Like there are things about how I experience life which are idiosyncratic, which it would be a mistake to infer from the fact that I am this way. That it's going to be representative. Now, of course, in principle, everyone everyone knows that because everyone's an individual and everyone knows that everyone else is an individual, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But in practice, I worry that that can get blurred, and that it's not that I worry about people inferring negative things about philosophy. I worry about them doing it for the wrong reason. I worry about them doing it because of idiosyncrasies about what's bad about me or what makes me miserable. That they'll think that that's systematic. And you know, I, I just think. I, I I do sometimes feel under some pressure to do this. Partly that's that's self-generated. I mean, so I haven't done a personality test, but I assume I'd get the opposite of whatever you just said, and it would make me think I have to um, do this for other people. Maybe I have the agreeableness <laughs> disease or something, and so that that and partly you know cliche is true. Like you do receive. Um, I'm in a field with very few. Um, um, ethnic minority or black, particularly um, philosophy professors, especially in the bits of philosophy I do, and I, you know, I get people saying to me, like I've just had messages that people say to me that they look to me as an example of, uh, of black black philosopher and, man. Who's that you know, guy who I, called you black philosopher man on Twitter? Black philosopher. <laughs> <laughs> that was, um, that was, <laughs> but I was wonderful though. <laughs> But uh, yeah, um, so you know, so that also. But the point is that that makes me kind of aware, or at least it's got in the back of my mind that some people are are reading what I say and seeing in it like um, evidence of what it's like to be a philosopher. And so, right, I, I yeah, that so would never I mean, ever so. have occurred to me. It would not have occurred. I mean, um, I can imagine uh, there there might be specific personalities who are more attracted to philosophy. Um, and I can also imagine that there might be specific difficulties in, um, there might be kind of burden of representation difficulties or, or prejudice or many other things might happen if you are a minority in, in an environment. I know that from India, <laughs> from being a Parsi 
um, I'm very familiar with the sensation of being a minority. Um, uh, and not here in the UK, but in India, I, ha I had that sensation very strongly. And it's a very double-edged sword. You stand out all the time and that is that can be good and it can be bad. Uh, and there are kind of advantages that you can make of it and also dangers. Um, but I would never have linked any of that to any of your self-denigration. It really seems, so I would, obviously you're not going to take my word for it because you never take my word for any of these things. <laughs> but I, if I were you, which I clearly am not, uh, I would, <laughs> you see, I'm not rising to any of these. Well, rising to it implies that you want a response and I know you don't want one. So I'm not, I don't know, falling to it or, um, but I, I don't, I don't think people are going to think that this is because of philosophy or because you're a, um, a person of color in philosophy or, or, or anything else. I think they I think it's really clear that it's idiosyncratic. Yeah, I mean, so this kind of, it, it speaks to the general issue, and it's part of the sort of the odd thing about being too online, is um, so much of how I take it, people respond to me. You know, there are many more people mm -hmm. responding to me and what I say and what I do than I know personally. Um, and so I, I, you know, I find myself adrift, uh, like what the relationship is between what I, what I hope to be doing, what I take myself to be doing, and um, what I'm experienced as doing, or what a kind of social uptake, if any, of what I do is or will be. And um, and I think this is just part of navigating that. You know, I, I the 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 benefits of about of self denigration of like why I am this way on the internet. I mentioned there's the center on authenticity and, and a feeling of self expression, being able to be honest. And those are kind of like private benefits. They're benefits to me in a certain kind of way. And and they you know, these habits were developed at a time when I didn't have anything like the number of followers um, on any kind of social media thing. And I didn't have um, any, I mean, I, you know, this be real, I don't have that many followers now and I'm not that big a deal in my community, but I didn't have any community position. Right? I, was, I was just some random student. And it was Facebook. It was just people who knew me personally following me. And so, like, you know, I part of this is me thinking through right now on this very podcast just, uh, what the relationship is between now that I have a slightly more public persona than I've had at previous points in my life, and I, and I just don't know how to respond to that. But I, you know, what I do know is it would feel like a betrayal, or it would feel sort of, um, it would feel like I was constantly lying to the world if I wasn't able to at least sometimes express that you know I. I don't feel that way. And so, you know, it maybe relates to a bit of a random jump, but the people often talk about imposter syndrome in academia, this idea like academia, a lot of professions, right? Where people feel that like the worry is, is that, um, you know, you're, you're, you're no good and everyone thinks you're good and um, you're going to be discovered. And that's very stressful. And, you know, I've never identified with that. And partly because I, I deeply, mm. you know, I deeply don't have the worry about being discovered. That's been a nice thing. Like I've been in such a way that whatever my fears are, I, I can honestly say that I've been open about what I take my limitations and what my failings to be. Um, and I have tried, you know, I joke about trying to be realistic. So for instance, you mentioned it would be too preposterous for me to call myself stupid. Um, but like, I don't mm -hmm. call myself stupid, not because I think it'd be totally preposterous, but I don't, I don't think I'm stupid. I think I'm okay. Right? And, and so, you know, 
don't, I don't, I don't try to invent flaws. I just try and be honest about what I take my flaws to be. Um, and so that has kind of protected me from this kind of imposter syndrome in as well. And so, you know, whatever I think about how to like, how to engage with a public role or the, the weird kind of quasi public role, which is being a, a professor on, on social media, I don't want it to ever force me to or make me become inauthentic. Like that's the thing which I'm going to hold on to. Mm-hmm. And so it's just about having to navigate the various pressures in life. I think that's very, I mean, I, I wholeheartedly agree with that. And I feel that way myself as well. Um, and I, you know, I'm a, it's funny, I'm much more, I think that I am much fonder of myself and much more forgiving of myself and perhaps too forgiving. Um, so, uh, um, uh, because, you know, my behavior on Twitter is much worse than your behavior. You're one of the calmest, least baitable people, whereas I am eminently baitable, which is a really, it's a very a counterproductive personality trait. And in an objective way, it's a bad personality trait. And I can see that I have some undesirable personality traits, but I still kind of, I still kind of like myself. I'm still like, oh, well, I don't know, you know, you really shouldn't be like X, but whatever you're like X, I love you anyway. I have this very um, accepting uh, view and I don't know if that's always good. Uh, so I, I, I do think, you know, there's the whole self-esteem thing is extremely, is extremely fraught. And I want to say, um, this isn't the right moment to say it. The moment has passed. I'm going to say it now anyway, because it's otherwise it will be on my mind. But when I was interviewing Will Storer, one of the things he said was he took the, it's called the Newcastle Personality Assessor um, test. And it's very, it's a, it's also kind of a big five test. And he scored, as it were, badly. So the only desirable trait on which he scored highly on the test was openness. He scored low on conscientiousness. He was low on agreeableness. He was low on extroversion. I can't remember what the other, it's not exactly the big five. There are a couple more um, sort of categories, I think, if I recall rightly. But anyway, um, I said to him, you must be really disappointed, um, you know, that you had this score that suggests that you're kind of angsty, grumpy, loner who nobody likes. And um, and Will said, oh, no, it was a huge relief <laughs> to feel like this is who I am and now I can just, I, I'm going to stop trying to change it. I'm going to stop apologizing for it. Um, that was also very, very interesting to me. Yeah, I think that, I mean, on a personal note, I take much more interest in... in you than I do in random Twitter people because you're in London. So I I have this kind of, um, you know, so I have this personal um, wish that we'll become real life friends. So I'm always trying to convert um, the kind of Twitter acquaintanceships, which are, which feel to me have a kind of unreal quality into real life acquaintances, which I, acquaintanceships, which I feel is the gold standard. I don't, I have, uh, um, I mean, a lot of people seem to feel close to other people who they only know online. And I don't feel that. I always feel like there's this weird artificial, it feels kind of cringy and odd, um, you know, to be friends, quote unquote, and not have ever met in person. So I, I'm 
always kind of trying to trying to convert the more interesting Twitter people into real life people. Um, and so maybe I will manage to convert you into real life friend. I hope so, but I'm not banking on it because maybe we won't get on. Um, and I, I maintain. I hope. <laughs> yeah, you've got a. You've got now. A, uh, you're, now you're doing a yeah. shtick. Um, now it's become a shtick. But um, also, um, and I, I do also reject some friendships. You know, some people want to be friends with me, and I just don't feel like we gel. Um, and I don't kind of try to collect more and more friends just numerically. Uh, but anyway, that is why I take much more, why it kind of hits more home to me and I take more kind of interest, um, I would say, because these parasocial relationships are are very odd, that those those kinds of relationships are are very weird, because on Twitter, it's like, I'm saying very personal things, and then I'm also saying things like, buy my book, um, and and, you know, when I'm talking to friends personally, I don't tell them to buy my book. Or maybe I might, but once, not like every other day. Um, I don't, you know, I don't try to make my personal friends join Letter or read Aria or, or whatever. Um, you know, I tell them what I'm doing and that, that, that's it. They take it or leave it. I don't advertise. And so it's a really odd combination of things going on. Don't you feel that that is happening so this kind of it calls back to the optimistic versus pessimistic vision of the future. And actually, one of the things which pushes me towards the pass, the optimism case, is I I don't have the same sense that you have that um you find it hard to forge kind of deeper or more meaningful connections online. Um, I do actually have you know with some people. I do have a kind of sense of uh, closeness or a sense of um, uh, you know, that I've established a genuinely meaningful relationship to me and, and I hope to them on the basis of very largely online interactions. And so there's a first of Elizabeth Barnes and I've learned a lot from her work. And because I learned a lot from her work, I ended up reaching out to her online to discuss um, her work one day. And... Um, you know, and from that now, now we get along, and I feel pretty confident that she would agree that we have a largely online relationship. But it's also a good friend, and and so I kind of I hold out hope that with the right kind of format or the right kind of medium, this is possible. And now, what actually made it possible with 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 Barnes is a kind of combination of publicity and privacy, which is that the Facebook format we we met just because professional network. I think we did meet in person at a conference exchange you know information such as we were friends on facebook and then you know have the sort of more shallow public interactions and then nowadays we largely talk via like um the dm the messenger system for for um facebook and you know what what that means is is that like um the things which are for intimacy or closeness they were able to happen in kind of a longer format, um, a format which did allow does allow for a bit more an instant messenger systems, a bit more just going back and forth quite quickly, and also which isn't always like a quasi public display. I think one of the things about Twitter, maybe I just don't use the DMs enough, but like one of the things about Twitter is it's it's always very brief, the threading is no good, and um, it's always very public, and so, mm. like you're always talking before an audience and. And so I think Twitter is an unusually bad 
format for forming deeper relationships, but there are other online venues which which do make it more possible. My hope is that it's possible. I'm going to defend Twitter by just saying that it's a really good springboard to relationships. Um, And it's, it's really good for making kind of serendipitous friends. When I went to live in India, I knew absolutely nobody. And almost all, I mean, later on, I started meeting people in person, but um, my whole circle of friends was built out of people I met through Twitter and to a lesser degree through Facebook. Um, But especially through Twitter, because um, it's, there's so much more possibility for serendipity. Uh, so um, that that's that's been really helpful to me. That it's kind of been like we launch from here, and then it goes off Twitter. Um, but yeah, I do have a strong preference for the real world. I mean, I love talking, interviewing people on the podcast. Um, don't get me wrong, but I've been very reluctant to to Zoom with people um, during this period. I'm just kind of waiting to see them. I find I feel like when I'm zooming, it's almost worse than nothing. Um. <laughs> um, well, I mean, yeah. So Zoom is. Very, I was actually a, a friend of my different philosopher, Zinbi Ward. She was telling me about research, which um, you know has it that like Zoom conversations. I guess this would probably go for in general, like video message conversations. They're actually more tiring and harder than in-person conversations mm-hmm. in subtle ways. Like you have to do a lot more work to like pick up on conversational cues, to track facial expressions, etc. It turns out when you're doing it via um, communication over these screens, and when you're doing it in person, I don't know why. That's what I'm told. And and so like there is a sense I think in which it's just more exhausting. It's just harder to do these things over Zoom. I you know I also do look forward to the return of the return of meet space, the return of IRL mm-hmm. interactions. Mm-hmm. Um, and, 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 you know, certainly I do also think that I've, I, that kind of spontaneity and that kind of um, random connection, which more open social media platforms like Twitter allow for, that's certainly good. And I've met people who I would like otherwise just never have known. You know, they never, they never would have come across them um, in that way. But I mean, I also find it's kind of a, this is a good and a bad thing, but it is kind of a rage machine. You know, you say I'm always calm, but I'm not. I I get angry on on the internet all the time, and um and I think at least part of that is just because you know these formats facilitate like random people dropping into your life. Um, sometimes random people drop into your life and you know insult you out of nowhere. Um, they can, like, very shadow on what's going on because you can only have very shadow on what's going on in this kind of format. And actually, that's quite funny. Like when that far right guy said I was black philosopher man, um, you know, that was actually funny, right? So that that's not so bad. The worst one though is when you get like hate follows. You can build up these bizarre parasocial relationships with people, mm-hmm. which are actually entirely negative, which aren't psychologically good for you, which probably are just irrelevant to them because they don't even know because you're just kind of following their tweets from afar as a random stranger. And you know, I find myself hate following not some people it's like you know obsessively checking because i know their take will annoy me um yes me uh, yes i've been doing less of that but i do that too and i don't why do i do that because i'm i know i'm not going to enjoy reading what they have to say but i feel it just a compulsion to i guess it's some kind of thrill seeking behavior isn't it i guess i mean it's 
So I have sort of the easy explanation is like as discussed because I hate myself and so I do things that make me sad, right? Now this is a, a coherent, so therefore true um, explanation of my behavior. Um, but like, you know, I, I think there probably is something, you know, there's a classic question in philosophy, right? Of like um, from Aristotle, like why do people watch tragedies, right? Because you know it's going to be sad and being sad isn't nice and yet people do it. So what's going on there? And it's something similar about kind of like righteous anger, right? Like, you know, wh- why do something which you know is going to annoy you because you're going to think the person is wrong? And like somehow like uh, it allows for catharsis or allows for something like emotionally valuable, even while it feels immediately like an unpleasant emotion. And, and I think that mm. has to be going on. I just, you know, I don't know the psychology well enough to say anything more detail than that, but. Mm. I don't know, but the anger feels real, like real anger. Mm-hmm. It might be over a very trivial thing, and maybe at some level I know it's trivial. But uh, when I'm watching a play and I feel sad, that doesn't feel the same as real sadness. Um, although I often find that w- when I'm watching a sad play, my kind of any underlying sadness I have just hitches a ride. Yeah. <laughs> On that. Um, but this kind of in enjoyable I, I it's a it's a tame and enjoyable expe- um, way of experiencing the sadness which I think in Twitter it doesn't feel that way you know like for example um, uh, you know playing a violent video game or something is a tame and enjoyable way of experiencing violence yeah it's allowing you to experience a range of things outside what you would find desirable in real life and to just kind of play in that in that space. This could be idiosyncratic differences in personality or not, but that's actually quite different from me. Like I don't I don't mind it as much when I think someone just doesn't like me um for reasons that I don't agree with them on, right? Because there are just sort of like, well, this person and I, you know, we don't see things the same way. Perhaps they just misunderstand me and um I, who who cares? I just you know I don't know. Like maybe maybe if we get to talk, I can correct them, or they'll correct me, and either way, it'll be fine. Or maybe we won't, and we'll just go on to screen, and it's okay. The cases which do bother me, the cases where I tend to lose my temper, is when um, I think of I start to see the person I'm talking to as kind of an exemplar or an avatar of a of a social trend I think is very negative mm-hmm. and. And so there, you know, it, then that can be for, like, serious things, if, you know, I think they're supporting very bad policies or, or regimes or something. Or that can be for negative things. Or that can be for, like, more, sorry, more trivial or less important things. Like, if I think they're supporting a, you know, a very bad tendency in my discipline or something more mm-hmm. local to my, my immediate life. And either way, I start to think, like, you know, in res- in what this person's saying, in what I'm responding to here, I'm not just responding to them. I'm somehow kind of... In my mind, at least, it's as if I'm I'm talking to all of the the bad things they represent, mm-hmm. and I'm mm-hmm. a memory that there's that passage from Moby Dick, right, where it's like, uh, which is I think quoted in Star Trek: First Contact. To continue the the nerd theme, um, where like you know Ahab has come to see in the whale, like not just this particular whale and the particular sli- and the particular bad trauma in their past but like all of the bad things which like affect his life and anyone's life and and, and when he responds to this whale he's responding to, to to misfortune per se rather than just this particular and it can feel like that here you know i'm not just responding to you know this defender of torture and arbitrary murder i'm defending to i'm responding to like torture and arbitrary murder per se and like that feels really important yes, to me yes 
And 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 that I think is hard to break. I, even though I'm consciously aware that, of course, I'm not doing that. Of course, there's nothing turns that much on me interacting with the person on Twitter. And yet, in the moment, I can lose track of that. Liam, I I could I could go on talking to you for at least another two hours, um, but uh, my housemate has just rung the dinner gong. <laughs> we ha- we. Really- <laughs> yes, um, I, I have become the avatar, talking of avatars of middle-class Englishness. <laughs> and we all have dinner together at 7 p.m. So um, I have to go. Okay. And I just wanted to say that it's been absolutely wonderful to talk to you. Um, and I'm, I'm, I'm glad you came on the podcast. And I still owe you a beer. Well, thank you for the kind words, and I look forward to that there. Bye-bye, and have a wonderful um, week, everybody. Bye. You've been listening to Two for Tea, the accompanying podcast for ARIO magazine. ARIO is a non-partisan political and cultural digital magazine with a universal liberal humanist slant, edited by Helen Pluckrose, with the assistance of sub-editor Yours Truly. At Ariel, we hope to counter the current atmosphere of frenzied partisanship and hysteria with calm, well-reasoned articles and civil discussions. Both Ariel and Two for Tea are entirely audience-supported. You, our readers and listeners, make these conversations possible. You can support the magazine, the podcast, or both on Patreon. Look for Ariel, A-R-E-O, A for Apple, R for Robert, E for Edward, O for Orange, and 2 for T. All patrons will get access to free monthly patron-only podcasts and other perks. Plus, by becoming a patron, you will keep these platforms alive and flourishing. 2 for T is available on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and all other podcast subscription sites. If you're listening on a podcast app, take a moment to hit that subscriber button, give us a rating, Write us a brief review, even just a couple of words. Spread the news. Thank you so much for listening. Have a wonderful week.